Hi, this is Gary Witter, and you're listening to the FSF Popcast. The show whose interviews whoopsies make the Scarif explosion look like a small blip on the radar. But hey, we got a Ben now, so that makes us more better gooder, right? You weren't wrong about it being a silly introduction. <laughs> oh, we're not done. Our show is brought to you by our charity sponsor, the Red Shirt Widows and Orphans Fund, which supports the Wish Upon a Teen Foundation that helps out sick kids when they need it most. And just imagine the comfort you'll give Redshirt Crewman number 7567. He'll understand that when he puts on the red shirt and joins the crew of the Enterprise in their struggle against Director Krennic, that he didn't leave his family destitute and without hope, because the Red Shirt Widows and Orphaned Fund has his back, and what's left of his stardust. All right, guys, our guest today uh, is an author, a screenwriter. He's the editor-in-chief for PC Gamer Magazine, both UK and US editions. You've seen his work with The Book of Eli and Rogue One as a screenwriter for those movies. And his latest novel, Gundog, just released for our nerdy consumption. So, uh, yeah, we're going to want to check that out. We're going to talk to him a little bit about that as well here coming up shortly. We are very excited and ever so pleased as punch to welcome Gary Witta to the FSF Podcast. Welcome to the show, Gary. Hello, thanks for having me. And just to to clarify, I was the editor in chief of PC Gamer, but not for about twenty years now. That's a that was a lot. That was a that was like a whole other lifetime for me. I started in video games. I was the editor in chief of PC Gamer like in the late nineties through the early aughts, and then um, after that, I started my career uh, in screenwriting. So I've had this weird kind of bifurcation between two different careers. Stupid, dumb, stupid Wikipedia. <laughs> You use oh my Wikipedia god, don't look at my, don't look at my it's like my Wikipedia is so wildly inaccurate, it's ridiculous. You know, yeah. it's it's like I rolled the dice which I rolled the dice between that and IMDb. Which one's gonna be more accurate? But but Abraham Wiccan told Tim he could trust everything on the internet. Yeah, I That's mean right. this this is what happens when you do your own research. <laughs> yep. Uh, I actually did look it up on IMDb, and it still says you're editor in chief of PC. IMDb Gamer. is a mess as well. Don't believe. Look, you've got <laughs> it's you, all you, wrong. Just you know, any, any when in doubt, come talk to the source. You've got me right here. I mean, I will also tell you wildly inaccurate things about myself, um, but at least you'll be able to say you got it directly from me. That's true. I can't wait People to see what else we, what else we got wrong. So much more fun. <laughs> yeah. This whole interview is gonna be like. Yeah, about that. So here we go. That, yeah, let me actual... you straight on that one as well. Yeah. <laughs> but now, that, that means I gotta delete one of my questions. Actually, I'll figure that out later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Gary, the one thing that I am positive about because I got this from the source. I you've been talking about this a lot on social media as of late uh, because I follow you on Threads and watch what you do. Uh, you released information about a book you just that just came out called Gun Dog. Now, your uh, your friend Felicia Day said on Threads that we need to check it out because it's cool and it has mechs in it. And I have a hard time arguing with Felicia's logic. That sounds amazing. So, uh, if you would please tell all the folks who are listening and watching this interview what the the idea of the book is and how it came to be. I'm so glad you brought it up. How convenient that I should be on this podcast right as I have something to promote. I love it when things just like accidentally work out that way. Fantastic. Um, so yeah, Gundog is my second book. I'm a, I'm a screenwriter primarily. I write for film and television, but I also like to write books and comics and other things. And this is my 
second book, I wrote my first abomination back in 2015, which was kind of a gnarly medieval um, horror story. Uh, and this is much more kind of hard science fiction. I've always loved um, Mecha, you know, the whole Japanese um, mm -hmm. subculture of, of anime and, and manga that deals with essentially like big giant walking tanks that knock the stuffing out of one another. I've always thought that's just such a cool world. And it's always surprised me that there's never been like much of that in the Western world. Like we love the Japanese stuff. We love, uh, you know, Gundam and Neon, uh, Neon Genesis uh, Evangelion and Macross and all this, this stuff. But outside of like... I don't know, Transformers aren't even really mechs, but like Pacific Rim and like robot jocks from back in the day. Like there's mm -hmm. not a lot of like mecha uh, in the West, like homegrown mecha. And so I always wanted to, I just wanted, I had an itch that I wanted to scratch. Was like I wanted to write something with a giant uh, uh, mech. Um, and that's what this is. And it's a very Americanized version of it. It's all set in, um, uh, in a post-apocalyptic America after an alien invasion. Uh, and it's about a young girl who grows up in an alien prison camp and escapes and finds this kind of abandoned prototype for a, essentially a, a US Air Force war mech that was that was um, developed to try and fight the aliens and they weren't able to finish it in time. But she fi fixes it up and powers it up and becomes its its pilot um, and essentially uses this this thing to kind of start a new um, human uprising against the aliens that have taken over the world. So it's, you know, it's it's very popcorny. I don't think it's going to win any awards or anything, but it was it was designed to just be a bit of fun. It's kind of a, a just a fast page turner, uh, you know, popcorn roller coaster type ride. And so far, people seem to be enjoying it on on those terms. I mean, okay. you sold yeah. me on it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sitting here listening to you describe it, going, "Well, I know what my next Audible purchase is going to be." Well, and the nice um, thing is, you don't even need to purchase it because I I, I made it in a really weird way. I wrote this book uh, during the pandemic, and um, the original plan was to self publish it. Because I just wanted to see what would happen if I did something without any kind of gatekeepers or traditional publishers sure. or anything at all. Because you know the the great thing these days is anyone, right? We don't need the gatekeepers anymore, right? Anyone can start a podcast or put something, or, you know, make their own movie on their iPhone and put it on YouTube or self-publish a book, right? You can go straight to an audience, and there have been tremendous uh, success stories in self-publishing. You know, Andy Weir self-published mm -hmm. The Martian, Hugh Howey published. Uh, self-published wool which went on to be silo on apple tv 50 shades of gray of course was originally like twilight fan fiction that then blew up and became a big thing right so you can just you know you can just go straight to an audience now and i thought oh, I'll, I'll do that but um one thing that i learned during that process was my wife um leah listens to a lot of audiobooks on audible like three books a week like she's voracious audiobook oh, wow. consumer and i and i learned through her that um fully one third of all books that are sold are in the audio format. Like I want to have every three people that are like buying a book, they're buying the audio book to have it read to them rather than, you know, turning pages. And I thought, man, if I, if I'm going to self publish this book, I kind of have to do the audio version as well. Otherwise it's like one out of three potential, you know, listeners, readers that I'm not reaching. And so what was fortunate was during the pandemic, I, a lot of actors and people that I know from my kind of day job, my Hollywood career, we're sitting around with nothing to do, right? Because all the movie sets were shut down. No one was filming anything. And I reached out to a couple of good friends of mine. One was uh, Shannon Woodward, who was on HBO's Westworld and has been in a bunch of really cool TV projects. He's amazing. Uh, Troy Baker from The Last of Us. And yes. I said, would you be interested in, in narrating this book? And they did it just, you know, for fun. And they narrated nine hours of, of audio. Uh, we put a, a Austin Wintry, a brilliant composer, put a full orchestral soundtrack on it. And we just put it out into the world for free last year as an, as a nine episode uh, podcast, like a season of television. It's nine hourly episodes. But if you listen to the whole thing, essentially, that's the book. It's the audio book in episodic format. And um, we just released it all 
for free. So if you're interested in the book, but you're an audio book person rather than a um, you know a page turner, you know a, a, a visual reader, uh, you can just type Gundog into Audible or any podcast service, and it'll pop right up, and it's all free. Awesome. Yeah, well, I will be doing that. That's really cool. I, know, I just taught, I taught my I taught myself out of a lot out of potential book sales there, but I did that when I decided to give the audio version away for free. And the original plan was to was to self produce and self-publish the audio version. We put it out. Again, anyone can put up a podcast. That's what we did. And the plan was to self-publish the book right after. But the podcast went on to be really successful. And a publisher approached me and said, do you want to publish the print version of the book through us? And so um, that's what I did. But it just took a little bit long. Basically kind of restarted the whole publishing process. And so this weird thing happened where Gundog, the audio book, was out, I think, almost like a year ago. And only now, a year later, has the actual book that the audio version was was translated from now on show so i kind of did it in a weird way I, I tend to make things up as i go there was no like overarching like master plan or strategy to do this which is why it ended up coming out in a weird way but yeah it's now available in in all formats the podcast is for free or you can get an ebook or you can go find a an actual book on on uh, amazon or, or in bookstores excellent because that's that's my preferred book consumption way i i used to be a, a really big reader when i was a kid you know i was a page turner i read a lot of the, the classics and all those things and then about 17 for whatever reason i think it was because there was girls uh i stopped reading books and i was doing stuff outside and chasing girls and you know all these other things and uh yeah in the last couple of years i've really gotten back into audiobooks and you know, it's it's a nice thing. I when I'm you know driving in the car today, I was listening to uh, Justina Ireland's uh, new uh, version, a uh, new book for about the high ground. Um, you know, or the not the high ground, but the high republic. Really, excuse me, the high ground. That was Obi Wan. Anyway, yes. uh, <laughs> I knew where I was going with this. You didn't know where I was going with. So I knew where I was going with this. But yeah, so I just started. You know, but that's where I spend most of my time. And if I'm going to listen to something. Or I'm going to read something. It means I'm going to listen to it. So, yeah, I'm excited to know that's available. Yeah, you'll like it. And like I said, it's it's broken down into these episodic chunks. So there's like natural, you know, you can binge the whole thing. If you want to take a break, there's kind of like natural cliffhanger type stopping points as well. It's cool. Love it. That's fantastic. I'm more than likely going to grab both because I, I flip flop between like a physical thing I can hold and just listening. So the fact that I can get both versions is fantastic so I'm, it's interesting i've thought about this a lot about whether or not when 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 someone says oh they oh i've read that and but but it was the audiobook like i don't know i, I thought it, it's interesting because i made an audiobook but i'm not really an audiobook listener i i prefer to read right i'm i'm, I'm more of a visual reader um but i mean I, I don't know if there's any science behind it like whether or not you consume or absorb a book in the same way when it's being read to you by a narrator rather than you. Cause I, I like to like stop and linger on a sentence or a phrase mm -hmm. and read the book mm -hmm. at my own pace. And obviously you can pause it as well, but like, I just like to look at words um, that obviously it's not. And, and I, 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 there are people that I know who listen to audio books at like 1.5 or like two X speed. Cause they can speed read the books, oh, I can't but, do that. which is like crazy, but I know that some people are, everyone's different. Everyone's brain is wired differently. I know people that listen to podcasts at like, you know, twice the speed because they can listen, they can listen to twice as many podcasts, but I know everyone kind of sounds like they're on helium. It's very strange to me. Um, but yeah, everyone's different. And that's why we made it this way. I, the very, very first thing, um, or the, the most common question I got when I announced the book was, is there an audio book? And I was like, yeah, it's, it's, you can actually go listen to it for free. So we've 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 um tried to cater to everyone 
That's fantastic. I'm totally, I'm totally guilty of doing the audiobook with the physical book. Like I will read mm-hmm. it while listening to it. Oh, really? I have, I have both inputs that I'm like, I'm watching the words as I'm listening to the words and somehow that, that gets it ingrained in there a little bit further. Oh, I've never, that's interesting. It's kind of like watching a movie with the subtitles on and reading the subtitles at the yeah. same time. My, my wife wonder, does the exact same thing. See, yeah. I wonder if that's part of it is that I can, I can focus on both because like when I read, I have a tendency to jump further down and then realize that I didn't actually read the paragraph. Like I don't remember it, but if I have the speed like regulated with the audiobook and I'm following along with the words and I actually like focus on them better. That's interesting. That's harder for me to do while I'm driving, but yeah. Yeah, totally <laughs> maybe not while you're driving. <laughs> Can you not. not get like a little like a book holder to like clamps onto your steering wheel? That would surely solve the problem. I, I just use a big just like, as much as you like. Just rope it down; it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah just tie off the steering wheel. Yeah, yeah. Tie, tilt your head every time while you're reading. <laughs> I mean, people I have think I'm, people think I'm singing. I'm. <laughs> I have a friend who, for a long time, put her Kindle over her speedometer. Oh Jesus! Yeah, I don't ride with Ooh, her. Oh no! Uh, I don't ride but, with her. It's a dangerous when idea. It, when it comes to audiobooks, that is like you tap into an entirely new section of people. Uh, whether it be people that are slightly neurodivergent, like me, I have ADHD. I get both because there are some days where I cannot sit still long enough to physically read a book, so I have to put the laundry away and listen to it. I have to do something else and then absorb the the uh, the book that way. Or there's people like my wife has dyslexia, where some days she reads the same word over and over and over again, and it just doesn't click. So it's so interesting because and you and I have a lot in common because I'm also ADHD, <laughs> like severely chronic. I remember when I took the test, the doctor at the end said, I said, do I have HD? And he's like, oh, yeah, I think there's like 98th percentile <laughs> or something. It was really bad. Um, yeah, that's, that's the joke <laughs> that I love. It's like, I don't know what HD is, but I got 80 of them. It, <laughs> it was a test they gave me. Where it was, it was, I don't know how you were diagnosed or whatever, but it's it, it was a laptop. And the, they set up a little program. It's like every time a letter pops up on the screen, yep. press the space bar. Unless it's the letter X. In that case, don't press the space bar. I and I it flunked number. it so badly because like even like right as the test is beginning, I'm like looking at the little Windows logo on the, the, the little sticker. Go, oh, that's interesting. They put a sticker on it. Like, I'm already like off somewhere else. And I'm trying like this is the one time when I'm like actually trying to focus because my ADHD is being tested. And also my wife. Um, has dyslexia. And one of the things that I learned from that that's really interesting, there are special typefaces that you can get. Um, mm-hmm. Like, so when, she, when, when I give her, since I ask her to read, when I asked her to read my book or if I ask her to read scripts, sometimes she'll, like, I'll give her the raw text, she'll import it into her, pro, whatever it is that she has on her iPad or whatever, and and just uh, copy it all into, into these specific, these very special fonts and typefaces that are made um to be easy more easily um uh, read and understood by dyslexic readers which i thought was i thought was really interesting and it's really very cool. cool yeah that it's the same thing uh my wife mimi has a nook instead of a kindle mm-hmm. uh same thing you can just upload it in uh the dyslexia font and that's the only thing she can read with for the most part or at least her preferred form uh because there are days where she goes through the same sentence back and forth and back and forth and it just doesn't click in there but at the I, same I think time is... she eats through 80 books a year so yeah and that's the thing my my wife reads way more books than me because it's just an easier way for she can lazy like she, she can do it while she's doing other things and i think sometimes in, in some cases like your case it is because adhd is like the only way you can't focus 
But I think with a lot of people and with my wife, it's like she doesn't have time to sit and read. And mm-hmm. so the only way to read is while she's also like is, is is basically doubling up and doing it while she's doing something else. When our um, when our second child was born, you know, she spent a lot of time in a in a in a chair nursing, you know, for hour, you know, sometimes for hours getting our baby to sleep. Um, and she would put the AirPods in and she would listen to, you know, trashy uh, murder novels and stuff like that yeah. while she was while she was um with our with our um, with our baby so it's yeah it's sometimes it's a it's a practical thing as well like so when you're driving uh, i i always have music or or something on in the car mm-hmm. I, for some reason i can't listen i have a hard time listening to podcasts and like spoken word stuff but i you know i love to listen to to, to music in the car all day long and if i don't have that it feels it feels very lonely yes agreed so Tim typically steals this question for the first question of the interview, but wanting to talk about your book first, I totally understand because it sounds fascinating. But usually he asks what our guest's origin story is. So what got you started in writing? I grew up in, so I'm originally from the UK. I grew up in London and I was a super nerd. I grew up on American popular culture because we certainly did then and we still do today. In the UK, we import a lot of our popular culture, right? Brits love Star Wars too and Star Trek and Doctor Who and Knight Rider and Battlestar Galactica and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Blake Seven and everything that we grew up on. Um, and I and I grew up in the 80s when, you know, video gaming and computer gaming was was just really getting started. I had an Atari 2600, I had a Commodore 64, and I loved video games. And I also loved movies. I, I just voraciously, I, I, I had such a collection of uh, VHS tapes back in the day. That's, I'm, I'm dating myself, but... Um, I, those were my two. I grew up loving movies and, and video games, and I, I didn't like school very much. But I, because I was a nerd before it was cool to be a nerd, so I kind of got pushed around. Mm-hmm. Um, like now, now every celebrity's like, "Oh, I'm I'm such a nerd. Please give me a job on a Marvel movie because I love this stuff." But it's all you can kind of tell, like the fakers from the real ones. I I earned, I paid my dues. I got kicked around um, uh, the schoolyard when I was a kid for like you know for, for being into like Star Trek and stuff before it was cool to be into that stuff and comic books and so forth. Um, and I always imagined that, like, because like, English was the the only was the only subject to school I was any good at. I used to write short stories, and I, 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 again, like Douglas Adams and 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 people like that were were, were huge uh, science fiction authors. Were a huge. That's what I just I just read that stuff all day all day long. That's just what I wanted to do. And I saw Star Wars, and it's like I want. That's what I want to do. I want to make stuff like that. That is so cool. And I always I always imagine like maybe I can get a job in video games. Maybe I can get a job in in movies and television. I don't know, like either one of those would be great. And I ended up getting a job in um, video games. I worked for video game magazines for many years, started out reviewing video games and eventually became editor of PC Gamer, and that was, which was a magazine that started in the UK. And then they launched a US edition uh, in the in the late 90s. And that's what brought me out here. I moved out here from the UK to run the American edition of PC Gamer. And I did that for a few years. And then the company that um, employed me, uh, kind of went belly up during the, um, the, the great dot-com crash of like 2001. Oh, yeah. And I found myself suddenly out of a job and thinking about, well, what do I want to do? Do I want to go back to doing what I was doing? Uh, I had a pretty good career in video games at that point. I had a good resume. I could have got another job in games. Uh, but I thought, I don't know, maybe, you know, sometimes, you know, life has a way of like forcing you out of your comfort zone and, and giving you the opportunity to make a different choice. And so, well, let, let me try the, I'm in California now. I'm only a few hundred miles from LA. I don't know. Let's try it. Let's see. And I had enough money saved up to live very, very frugally without a job for about a year. And I lived off, you know, canned soup and ramen noodles. And I tried to, tried to teach myself to write screenplays. And um, 
I wrote a bunch of them, each one slightly less terrible than the last until I had one that I wasn't ashamed to show to somebody and started showing it around to people and managed to get the attention of you know a, a manager. And that was the beginning of my uh, screenwriting career. What would have been like, you know, circa 2002, something like that. So I've been doing this now for more than 20 years. Hmm. Fantastic. Awesome. I, I listening to your, to your list of things that you enjoyed with the, it's like Star Wars and Star Trek and Doctor Who, and I'm like Americans like Doctor Who. <laughs> well, that's the thing; it goes both ways, and 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 we Brits do have a tremendous um, uh, track record when it comes to science fiction, right? Like I said, Doctor Who, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mm-hmm. uh, Blake Seven. I mean, there's mm-hmm. uh, and, and a lot a lot of it is like only like only like Doctor Who obviously has become hugely popular in recent years, yeah. but a lot of the stuff that we're known for is is kind of cheesy, kind of culty stuff yeah. and shows that aren't hugely popular but we did you know some of the some of the some of the greatest you know science fiction writers in history have come from uh our brits mm-hmm. and so we, we've got a good track record there but when it comes to like film and television um there's a tremendous amount of snobbery in the uk about this stuff like you, know, you don't see a lot of science fiction made outside of doctor who anymore and right. um it's it's a it, I, I don't know if it, like if, if it's not like downton abbey or something that's that, that's perceived to be upmarket or proper or like some kind of jane austen adaptation or whatever it's it's very hard to get any traction whereas you know here in america everything is hollywood and popular culture and like we love all this stuff the more robots and ninjas and aliens the better right and so that's and that again that's why what i grew up on i grew up primarily on a diet of american uh sci-fi fantasy popular culture and so you know you you kind of got to go to the place where they make that stuff if you want to if you want to be a part of it and so that's mm-hmm. what i did i have to say though i have a soft spot for like classic british sci-fi like the the retro the old doctor who oh yeah horrible as it is like as low as the production quality is i love them so much and i actually have the um the six-part hitchhiker's guide on dvd like i have the which is also very (laughs) from a production standpoint very wobbly it is but it's it's so much better than the the Hollywood motion picture version of it. They, uh, yeah, it's I mean if you can if you can set the production values aside and appreciate that yeah like every every Doctor Who planet was basically the same quarry in southeast mm-hmm. England. Um, <laughs> I, I mean it's funny everyone nostalgia I think affects a lot of this. They, I, somebody told me once everyone thinks the 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 best era of music is whatever was around when you were sixteen years old, right? Like and mm-hmm. that's that's true. I'm a child of the '80s, so I like '80s music. And for me, when you say Doctor Who, I think about Tom Baker. And right. if you say to me Star Wars, I think about the original trilogy because that's that's what it was around when I was coming up. And the stuff that makes its mark on you when you're young and impressionable, that is the stuff that is um, that ends up kind of being most most resonant. So yeah, I mean, I, I went back and looked at Doctor Who recently because it's all one of the streaming services has all, has all of mm-hmm. it, and it's. Nostalgia is a tricky thing. Like it can be tough to go back and look at something that you loved as a kid, and now as an adult, go, "Oh, that 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 set almost fell right. over." Oh, and, I know, like, I know. like you can mm-hmm. see that you can see the 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 boom arm in that shot, and it's like it's all very shaky. And <laughs> HD has not done any anyone any favors. When in you terms look of at the, the original, makeup. when you look at the original Daleks, and they are trash cans with a plunger and a whisk. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. had a and budget of but, like thirty dollars, <laughs> and that and and that is kind of the charm. And I think it's testament to the strength of the storytelling of something like Doctor Who that it can like it, we were all enraptured by it, even mm-hmm. even though like at the time you could tell like this is like because then there was like 
a lot of the Doctor Who that I love came out like after Star. Like Star Wars showed you what science fiction can look like. It's, right. Oh my god, that looks amazing. Uh, and then, but then Doctor Who keeps coming out on these like, like much cheaper uh, BBC budgets. But like it didn't matter, right? Because the story and the characters like was so cool that you that, it, that you didn't mind that the Daleks looked like you know trash right. cans. Right. And I think that says so much about it, like you said, with the story and the and it wouldn't have lasted 60 years if it wasn't worth it, if it wasn't good. Like the yeah. story and the characters are so much. Yeah. And it's really it's really the opposite end of the spectrum that we, that we, of course, already know, which is you can spend two hundred and fifty million dollars on state of the art visual effects and you can you can blow up a million planets but if there isn't an interesting story or compelling characters at the heart mm -hmm. of it like it's all for naught right no, no one cares right exactly. um, and 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 again doctor who shows that because they don't have any of those things but they do have good characters uh, and they do yeah. have good storytelling and so that and that's what keeps you that's what keeps you coming back it's why you know it's why low budget sci-fi can still be really really interesting because mm -hmm. you, you can do a lot with very little these days agreed we need we need more low budget sci-fi. I want to very clearly tell that the background is literally painted on. Like I need more I of that. If, I don't know if you've ever seen Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. It's one of the one of the best television shows mm. I've ever seen. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it was a show that um um came out of the UK several several years ago and it's kind of a fake show within a show where essentially they imagine that someone had made this show back in the day which was about a, a doctor who was also an exorcist at this haunted hospital and it's and it, it was it was like deliberate like can we can we make this show look as unintentionally bad as possible but like do it deliberately like what's the worst possible show that we could make and it's so stupendously bad but in a hilarious way i i strongly recommend i don't know if it's available on any, any streaming services but I, I think some of it's on youtube go find dark place it's astonishingly good at being bad. And if you like that kind of cheesy, wobbly set, you know, dialogues ever so slightly out of sync and everyone's kind of looking off camera because they're not quite sure what's going on, um, it, it, it replicates that, that feel of kind of the cheesy sci-fi and fantasy that we, that we grew up with in the UK um, quite brilliantly. And I high, highly recommend it. And the whole thing is done. It's, it's, it's like the idea is that they found this like lost show that had never been broadcast and now they're showing it um and the, that's fantastic the, the 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 guy at the heart of it is this character called garth marenghi who's a horror author and he's a hacky horror author he's so bad like his books are terrible but they say he somehow made this tv show which he starred in and wrote and produced and did the music for like it's it, it, it basically just like a tremendous monument to his ego um and he's such a and he's such a bad writer and he doesn't understand anything at all about what makes stories interesting his favorite because they intersperse it with these like interviews that he gives about how great he thinks the show is and uh, my favorite line is, and he thinks this is a brag, I'm one of the few authors, I'm the only author you'll meet who's written more books than they've read. And I'm like, wow, that's that's not the brag. <laughs> 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 or um, I know I know other authors that use subtext and they're all cowards. Like there's just he's just the best at being awful. And they they captured like that that terrible age of British television and just all flimsily bad science fiction I, if, I, if you if you get anything out of this interview with me today go watch garth marenghi's dark place when you're done and you'll you'll thank me for it it's so so good i gotta go find that now yeah oh my god <laughs> uh, anyway uh <laughs> so uh writing uh like screenwriting and writing books are very different forms of writing what would you consider to be like the most challenging thing about books versus screenplays and 
kind of which is your favorite to do, honestly. I mean, this, this, they're, they're both so different. It, it, it's like if you speak two different languages, like which is your favorite language, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. Which, but I, that's how I kind of think about it. Like screenwriting was my first language. That's what I first became good at. It's kind of how I developed my craft as a writer. And if you've ever read a screenplay, you know it's a very, very specific subset mm. of writing, right? There's a specific language and a cadence and a rhythm and a way that screenplays are meant to be kind of read and consumed is, you know, they're, they're not the finished product, right? They're just, it, it's not the house. It's just the blueprint. You're the architect and you come up with the blueprint, but then people will come along and actually build that house and tell that story based on what um, you've written. But also, but it also has to read well enough that someone will read it and go, Oh, we should make a movie out of this. Right. It has to sell itself as well. So it has to be an enjoyable read in its own right, but it's a very, very specific kind of writing. When I migrated over to writing a novel, I kind of wanted to do it because I wanted to see if I, because it is such a different thing and it stands on its own. Like it's not the blueprint, it is the house, right? It's the the, the novel is the finished product. And I found, I, I think the thing I enjoyed most about it, and the, the, if you had to ask me like, which one do I like doing more? I think I, I think I still like writing screenplays more because I just love movies, but the process, I enjoyed writing the book more because when I write a screenplay, I'm, I never have any confidence that what I'm writing is what ultimately people are going to see. Mm. You know, I've, I've, I've written, I've worked on three movies that have been produced um, in my career. One was almost exactly what I wrote, which is a small miracle. One was like kind of 50, 50. And uh, another one was almost nothing like I wrote. So you never know what's going to come out at the end of a, of a, of the Hollywood process like it, it's the, the the chances of if you want to be a storyteller the chances of you being able to tell original story and have it come out of that filmmaking process in any way identifiable or recognizable as what you originally intended as a writer very very low odds um mm. and you know because you get this you know we've all heard about studio you get the studio notes why why can't, mm. why can't the dog be a cat and you know what if they were um, what if they died at the end? And it, it's like, and they're not necessarily like the best notes, but you have to find a way to kind of navigate that process because as a writer in Hollywood, you are not, um, you have very little authority um, to, to kind of dictate what the story is going to be. Uh, there are always people above you, directors, producers, studio executives, actors, like everyone typically has like more of a say than the writer does, which sounds weird, but it's just the way it is. Um, and so when I wrote my first book, I came to that from a world of looking at of reading studio notes where the 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 reading between the lines, the message is always either do these notes or we'll find someone who will, right? Because writers get mm -hmm. hired and 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 replaced all the time. I every movie I've ever worked on at some point, another writer came in. Um, but that's unheard of in books, right? I, I, the, the analogy I used, I imagine like Stephen King like turned his new book into the publishers and the publishers said, Oh, we love this new book, Stephen. We don't love the ending. So we're going to have another writer come in and rewrite that part. Like it sounds ridiculous. Right. But that's what happens in Hollywood all the time. Writers are used to being replaceable and expendable. And um, it's one of the reasons why we're on strike right now is because writers are just not respected by, you know, the people who rely on us, you know, as the kind of the found like the storytelling foundation of everything that they build. And you know we just want a bit more respect and money, basically. Uh, but when I Fair. when I wrote my when I wrote my first book, um, they assigned me an editor, and the editor came back with her notes. You know, I think the character should say this instead of that, or well, that's a simplification, but a bunch of creative notes, and then most of them I agreed with. They were really really smart notes. There were a couple I didn't agree with, and I said to her like, I I, I understand where you're coming from with this note, but like I don't want to do it. Like I just want to have it the way that I wrote it. What do we do now? And she said, Well, then just leave it 
then just leave it and don't do the note. Like you don't have to, like, these are just suggestions. You're the author. And that was like, that was, that was so weird for me to hear that because again, in Hollywood, if you don't want to do a note, you, again, you either like bite the bullet and do it, or you find some way to kind of persuade them or convince them that your way of doing it is right. But that's really the only power you have as a writer in Hollywood is the power to persuade the people who do have the decision-making ability that you're right. And if you can't do that, then you're stuck with writing a version of it that you don't like or be, or being replaced. So just the simple act of, of realizing that when I write a book, no one else can come in and re rewrite me or fire me or force me to change something that I liked um, was that that was like a revelatory moment. And it's why now, you know, I've written a second book and why I think that I can see myself doing more in the future. I think screenwriting will always be my bread and butter. I think it's what I'm best at. And when things do go right and you see your name up on the on the big screen, it's it's magical. It's the best feeling in the world. Uh, but there's but it's always um, tempered a little bit by that feeling of like, oh, they changed that thing that I really liked and I wish I'd have had the power to control that and have it be the way that I wanted it to be. Um, that's kind of the Faustian bargain that you enter enter into when you when you when you work in Hollywood. Yeah, we'll make we'll make your movie into like a big production, but like there's going to be a lot of creative compromises and sacrifices along the way. When I write a book, I'm answerable to nobody but my audience, and so I can I can do it the way that I want to do it. The other side of that though is a little bit scary because oftentimes notes are really good. When I worked on Star Wars, mm -hmm. I was surrounded by everyone around everyone in the room was smarter than me and that made me feel really comfortable because anytime i had a bad idea somebody would check my math and say well here's why we we shouldn't do that like oh no you're right of course um and you know there's a whole process where i'm kind of basically idiot proofing all of my ideas um when i when i write a book it's nice to to have that authority but then it, with, you're working without a net essentially and no one is really checking your math again an editor might make suggestions but i get to overrule them and so the book coming out this week has actually been really both exciting and scary for me because i'm really excited and people do seem to be liking it but at the same time it's like oh man like I, i'm doing this without a net like at no point in the process was there a smarter person telling me that i or, or saying no you have to change this and so it's uh you know you you you, you assume all of that all of that risk yourself mm. That's so it's a really long-winded oh, yeah. way of answering the question, but it's like I, I can't say that I like one more than the other. There's, but they're so different. I'm very grateful that I get to do both. And for, anytime I come up with an idea for a story, like with Gundog, it, I, I might have tried to write this as a spec screenplay ten years ago, but nobody would have made it because I'm not Christopher Nolan. I'm not J.J. Abrams. I'm not the kind of guy that says, "Here's my big original science fiction idea. Please spend a hundred million dollars making this." Like if I'd have written this as a as a screenplay, nobody would have made it as a as a movie. But if I write it as a book, I, it's much easier for me to get that published. And all I want to do is tell stories and get them in front of an audience in whatever medium that might be, whether it's a novel or a podcast or a comic book. I, 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 again, there have been other you know feature film ideas that I've had was like, no one's going to make this, so I'll do it as a comic book instead. And that did actually come out. So anyway, and get us anyway, and get a story in front of an audience. I'm I, 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 that's always a win for me. Oh yeah, I the way you put it, I never thought about it that way before. Because I just, I'm very supportive of the strike, uh, and I totally understand that they deserve more respect and more pay and everything like that. But it never occurred to me that that was a possibility, that they could just go, oh, you don't want to do it? You're gone. Oh, I mean, it or just delete I mean, entire chunks. Like it, it, I don't know why that never clicked in my head. It happens all the time, and I'll and I'll and I'll, I'll I'll crack a little bit of the code for if you want any time. And this is this is something that's defined by the Writers Guild. Any to go look at the credits for any movie where there's more than one writer. Mm -hmm. And let's, so let's say, for example, like writer A um, and writer B wrote this movie. 
if those two names are separated by an ampersand, what that means is those two writers worked together as a team and wrote that script together. If they're separated by the letters A and D, what that means is one writer worked on the script, then they went away and another writer came in afterwards and made and, and wrote their version. And the script is a, is a, is a concoction of those, but those, those like I've worked on, um, like for example, on rogue one, I, I there's some of the, some of the writers, uh, 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 like the, the two writers that came on after me, one I'm very friendly with, and I know very well the other guy I've barely ever even met. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of a baton passing, um, uh, uh, mentality where you, you basically take the script as far as you can go and then someone else will come along with fresh legs and fresh ideas and fresh eyes and will make it better but it, there's but you, it, there's no guarantee that those writers ever even met or had any you know um consultation or discussion at all you just inherit the scripts I've, I've done it where i've come on after someone else left the project and i just inherited the script and the studio will say well listen we we like this script but we don't like this this and this which is why we got rid of the other guy now can you fix it and it's not my favorite thing to do. I don't, I don't like being writer B. I don't like being the guy that comes in fixing other people's work. I like to kind of work sure. from scratch. Um, but yeah, there's any number of times, you know, I, I think it was the Smurfs or there was one movie that like famously had like when they did the arbitration where, you know, sometimes the way that the studio wants to credit the writers is not what the writers think is fair. The Writers Guild actually has ultimately has jurisdiction over that. Um, and they'll put together an arbitration panel who will review all of the scripts and every participating writer who contributed to the script in some way can make an argument why they should be credited. But there are rules about how many writers can be credited on a movie. You can't just credit 20 different writers. Um, and so they have to figure out like, who are the two or three or four different writers who are going to actually make it onto the, you know, the poster in the, the movie itself, because, and that has, has huge career and financial, financial implications as well, because you only get to participate in residuals and royalties if your name's actually on the movie. So it's very competitive uh. and, and writers are always like, I mean, you, you write these statements. This is why I, it's almost like a trial. This is why I, my name should be on the movie. Um, and you know, I, I remember one of my friends, uh, worked briefly as a, as an, uh, uh, an arbiter it was their job to kind of review all the scripts and ultimately decide like which of the writers deserve credit on the film, like who's like, whose work is most present in the finished, finished film essentially. And that's very, there's no way to kind of mathematically define that there is kind of a formula for it, but you have to just kind of, you know, they have very experienced writers doing it because they have to figure out like who whose DNA is more in the movie than someone else's With, mm. on some of these big studio movies, you can have 20, 30 writers come and go and they all want credit, wow. but you can oh, only sure, credit yeah. three or four and you have to go, you have to read 50, 60 different drafts of a script and figure out, well, who really, who really has ownership of this of, and comparing that to the finished script, who, who really has ownership of the finished movie. I, I I've been through arbitration on every movie that I've, that I've, um, written and it's always a hard, it's like, no writer loves it. It's, it's horrible. Again, nice thing about a book one writer yeah you don't need to worry about yeah. that you just sure, yeah that yeah that probably oh my god that's me a yeah. whole lot to think about there's that's a lot a... going on that i got to process here <laughs> you know it's, it's yeah, and, that, and that's and that's and that's my life like I, one of the reasons why i was happy to write this as a book is like i'm always anytime i'm working on a big studio especially like a big studio movie i'm always waiting for someone to pull the rug out from under me either you know maybe i get fired and they get replaced or the whole project goes down in flames i worked i worked on a on a big studio movie for 20th century fox a few years ago uh wrote a script that everybody loved um had a great director had a cast attack idris elba anti circus 40 million dollars in pre-production costume sets built uh six weeks from production and then disney bought fox and killed the movie because they just didn't want to make it and so these things are oh, just geez. taken away from you Jeez. i mean and it gets worse right you i'm sure you heard about what happened with batgirl right that was a finished yeah. film. yeah 
Yeah, mm-hmm. and right. And now you've got 86. movies even being removed from streaming services, basically being mm-hmm. like airbrushed out of existence, like Stalin or something. Oh, this movie never. I forget you ever saw Westworld. That's not on HBO anymore, right? It's like what? It's so with these the idea that these things can be taken away from you is terrifying. And so what I liked about doing this as a book is like no one could ever pull the rug out from under me because I own the rug, right? There's no one above me. I'm, I, yeah. I don't if you the, the, if you can find a way to do creative work without having to ask for anyone else's money or permission, or at least like reduce that to the bare minimum. That's when I think you'll be most, most satisfied because you know, the golden rule is that he who has the gold makes the rules. Right. And if you're, if I'm paying a hundred million dollars to make your movie, you better believe I'm going to have a say in it. Right. Like I'm going to have opinions too. And that's valid. Um, But uh, I think, I think it's, I think it's often the, the, the trickiest thing about Hollywood is that um, somebody said to me once that it's, it's, um, Hollywood Hollywood is, is fundamentally kind of busted because it tries to marry art with commerce and mm. the two things don't ne- don't belong together and when they and when they do collide and it's irre- irresistible force meets a movable object commerce will ultimately always win and so it's a tough business to be an artist in and it's why I always say to people if you love if you want to be a screenwriter if you want to write movies really really think about like what it is that you want to write if you were that kid you know, who like, you know, the kid from Cinema Paradiso or the kid from the Fablemans, who's like looking up at the screen, just like in awe, like I was with Star Wars going, oh my God, the magic of the movies, I'm being transported to this other place. I want to do that. If that's what you love, then by all means, write movies. Just know it's going to be really hard and put up a fight. Um, But if you just like to write and tell stories, consider writing almost anything else, write novels, (laughs) um, you know, write, you know, write comic books, right? Write almost anything that will give you a higher percentage chance of getting your story in front of an audience in a way that you are proud of and recognize and can say yeah this is mine very this, cool this went a whole different way than what i thought no, I, this I question was going this to like, no no, no this is kind of like this a is funny a good podcast thing. and i feel like i've just been a massive downer no this no, is absolutely no, no. fantastic <laughs> this is this is good stuff you know one of the things that we love about this show is that is that we bring people on gary and and we have a preconceived idea of how things work in our little worlds and sometimes we get to have the ins, you know, that curtain peeled back, and we get to see what else is really going on in the world. And so it's kind of nice, uh, especially amidst the the middle of a of the strike and what's going on, to kind of understand a, a better position as to where you writers are at and and what you're dealing with and what's going on. I think that helps a lot of everybody else because you know there's a lot of people out there who don't understand. They're just they're just like oh, a bunch of whiny millionaires are, are are striking, and they don't understand what's at stake. They don't understand. Well, other yeah, and, and, and let me take the opportunity you know. to, to correct that. I mean, even the actors, you know, it's easy to point at actors. Well, aren't you rich actors? Well, like 95% of actors aren't rich, right? They're the people that are struggling. You know, you you see that the ones that you see are by de- by definition the most famous and the most rich. But you know, like there's a million other. Oh, that guy, he was on. I I know him from something. Like mm-hmm. those guys aren't making very much money at all. Right. Um, Good old and writers, soldier B in the right, background. And, and writers and writers generally, again, it's some of us. I have 20 years in in features, and I've written some big movies. I've I, I I've done okay. Um, but a lot of writers really, really struggle. A lot of uh, a lot of them can't even make enough to, you know, get their the health insurance that the the, the union. Uh, yeah. You have to make you have to make a minimum every year in order for your health insurance to kick in. And most writers and actors don't even make that minimum. Um, and so the, the, there's a lot more going on with the strike uh, in terms of you know writers' rooms and residuals and AI and a million different issues that are that are at stake. But they all stem from fundamentally the same problem, which is the which is the billionaires that run Hollywood just I think just don't have any respect for, and I think kind of resent 
the kind of the sweaty nerds that they rely on to tell the stories that make them all the money. Right. You know, nerds no, I, run the world. Yeah. The, ge yeah. the geeks, the geeks inherited the earth a long time ago. Um, but I don't think that the, the, I don't think the, 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 billionaire yacht havers like that very much. Right. They haven't caught on yet. So no, because they, I think they hate the fact that like, we don't need them as much as, as, as they, as they need us. Like, again, you can go to YouTube, you can go anywhere, you can get your iPhone out and, and, and make a movie. And there's a million different, different ways to, to tell stories, but the, the, the big studio guys and the tech bros that now run half of Hollywood can't do it themselves. This is why they, they love the, AI. oh, we'll, we'll just write, make a, a computer will do it. Right. No, it won't. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen any of the stuff that AI has made. Like, it, it, it makes me laugh every time I'm on Twitter and some tech bro will go, can you believe that an AI made all of this? And I'm like, yeah, because it looks like shit. I can easily <laughs> believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, painting with 12 fingers. Oh, yeah. I love, I love the hands. Did you see the other day? I can't believe this is true. It's like it, we're living in a parody universe now. Like, you know, you can't tell the difference between an onion headline anymore. Criminals are now <laughs> oh, no. buying and using fake prosthetic fingers. So that if they're caught on tape committing a crime, they can say, well, that's AI. AI. Look, my fingers are all messed up. Oh, no. <laughs> that's brilliant oh, that's in a way horrible. that it shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. That's so bad. But it is, oh. but it is, it is scary. There's a, there's a <laughs> I mean, there's a, I, I don't know. Again, this is a whole different conversation, but I think we are in a, in a very post-truth world there's a very funny twitch channel right now which is like a fake trump and biden debate and it's all done using ai voice generation oh yeah i've um, seen this but like they but they they but it, this is one of the things that ai is actually good at it sounds flawless mm -hmm. and right. we are we're going to enter an age where like i don't know audio and eventually <laughs> video evidence in like criminal trials is going to be basically worthless because there's no way to, to just distinguish it from from something that's been Correct. um made in ai the yeah. running man was very prescient remember the running man where they just mm -hmm. faked the footage like that ended up being exactly where we are now you just if you don't like reality you just change it correct yeah. just to quickly touch on that like the the twitch channel you mentioned or how they're like repl replicating voices that also goes into the strike because uh one of the tiktoks uh people i follow they had their voice in a hot sauce commercial mm -hmm. they never allowed their they never did that commercial that was all done with ai mm-hmm mm -hmm. And now they're trying to sue that company. Yeah, and, and it's a and whole so, thing. And so, the, yeah. and, and and writers are writers are saying one of the things we want is like we we don't just want AI not generating content, but like we don't want you using the stuff that we write to train AI to teach it how right. to write. Yeah. Um, and Correct. actors don't like having their voices used for things that they never consented to. So this is like a whole new thing that has to be contractually dealt with. One of the things that came out during the strike was actors telling stories about just like day players, right? People that show up for like bit parts in Marvel movies have to basically go in a truck where they get like their full face and body yep. scanned and put into a 3d computer model, which Marvel then, because you, know, you signed a piece of paper, they then, they then have like, they can, you, you'll show up in a movie paste. 20 years from now that you weren't even in, but you're like, oh, wait, I'm in this movie. Yeah. Because you signed that all away when you get, you wanted right. to do a Marvel movie. Right. So you signed the piece of paper. Well, guess what? We own your rights now in perpetuity. Right. Yeah. One and done when you're... You. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we don't owe yeah, you yeah. any money. Yeah. yeah, you were one and done, but you thought you you know you found out you were in uh, ten other movies. So, yeah, but the, yeah. there was a just quickly on that. Sorry, uh, there was a person that was in Wandavision that showed up like twelve times in that final scene where everyone's running away from the town. She was there for like thirty minutes that day. Got scanned in 
Yeah. And they just copy pasted her the entire time. This is, I mean, this is, I, I, I don't think we used AI at the time, but this is something that, that we were kind of like at the beginning of when we put Tarkin in Rogue One, right? Because that was computer mm-hmm. generated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Correct. I made the argument that Tarkin should be in the movie because, you know, it's it's right next to Star Wars and he's there on the Death Star. Like, I don't know right. how you tell a story about the construction and destruction of the Death Star that takes place like 48 hours before A New Hope and Tarkin's not there. Like, it, it seems weird. But like, well, how do you do it? Do we like cast someone who looks like him or like is it makeup? Like, what are we doing? So no, we're going to do it with CG. And they did this amazing stuff. And I think it, it, it looks incredible, but like some people are uncomfortable when they, and Princess Leia shows up at the end, which it looks amazing, but some people it makes people uncomfortable, right? Because there's a part of your brain that knows that's not really them, right? Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't want to accept it. You get into the uncanny valley. And as the technology only gets better and better, I think the uncanny valley is just going to get weirder and weirder. And we get to a point where you just can't tell the difference anymore. And that uncertainty is going to be, we're already there. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff um, where I, I I got fooled, like going around on social media. Oh my God, he really said that? No, actually he didn't. But like we right. made it sound like he did. Like who's yeah. to know what's real anymore? It's getting it's getting to be a scary time, but you did just mention one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. So I want to run this by you real quick. So you are part of the screenwriting crew that uh, was for one of my f- absolute favorite movies uh, of all time. I, to me, the best movie ever made is Empire Strikes Back, and Rogue One is easily in my top five. And I, I love it from a storytelling standpoint. I love it from a cinematic standpoint, and the fact that it felt original trilogy there was so much of what you guys did in that movie you guys captured the era you you wrote it for that era and it felt authentic to the time and the place for what it for where it belonged uh, and so i fell in love with that movie instantly and and and, and as a side note uh as as a massive star wars fan this is the only Star Wars movie where I have run out of the theater to my car, sped home so that I could go put in my Blu-ray of A New Hope so I could see the transition from <laughs> what happens at the end of Rogue One. Even though I knew what was coming in A New Hope, I still had to see it. I had to let my mind complete it. And That's, so- I, I love that. It's, it's such a great, because I, I didn't see it until it was all cut together and done. I knew where it was going, but I didn't see it until it was all done. Like the last few minutes, realize you're actually now watching the beginning of star wars it's like mm-hmm. i got choked up when i first saw it yeah Me i know too. there are I, I know there are people that have actually like spliced them together right you can watch it mm-hmm. as like a four-hour mm-hmm. movie and they put this connective tissue in which is amazing and i i'm, I'm i never get tired of hearing people that they that say that they liked it it was it was definitely i felt like i liked it i would have done anything in the star wars universe i i didn't i didn't like pitch propose rogue one that was john Knoll. they just they just, they just gave me the idea to, to work with um and i was really grateful because again the, the original trilogy that's the that's the pop music that was that was around when i was growing up right the, yeah, again right. empire strikes back and return of the jedi those those are the movies that that kind of made me and made me want to do this and so to be able to work in that 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 corner of the the timeline where that was so special to me was really uh, a great privilege but it was also really nerve-wracking because like you don't want like don't mess that, that was the thing when it was announced i was doing i got like my phone of course blew up and it was it was two there were every single message was there was two there was two sides to it one was oh my god this is amazing congratulations the second was the second one was don't screw this up don't screw it up <laughs> they, 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 they didn't say screw this up but you you told me i had to moderate my language um and that and that and that was in my head every morning when i went to work don't f this up don't f this up and and you know that will keep you honest uh, because you know, if if 
if you make a bad Star Wars movie, like it's gonna follow you. Like, I'm at Comic Con 20 years from now. Oh, you're the guy that wrote that Star Wars movie I hated. You ruined my childhood, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You don't want to be that guy. And so, fortunately, it came out. You know, and I always make sure not to take too much credit. I was one of only four writers on the movie, and Gareth and ILM and 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 all the brilliant actors, like they all made the movie what it was. I just have a little, just a little piece of it. I'll, ha I'll happily take some credit for it, but only a little piece. Um, but just to even be a small part of something that is so well liked and I don't know, different people have different views of this. I keep my views of the other movies to myself because we're all one big family. I know many of the other filmmakers, sure, understood. Um, but like, I think most people would probably say that the Disney era star, star Wars movies have been a bit of a mixed bag. Um, and I just consider, consider myself fortunate to be being associated with the one that seems to be kind of the broadly the most well-liked i think ign did a poll recently which is your favorite of the of the uh, disney era star wars movies and rogue one like won it with like 40 percent of the vote like it wasn't even close it was a landslide yeah i'll say it should be a landslide and so that is a a, a, a relief first of all again because we didn't screw up we we did good i think um and uh people liked it and you know it's it's been my I could probably work. I could work in in Hollywood for another forty years, and it's very unlikely that anything's going to be in front of Rogue One on my resume, right? Because what's bigger than that? And it was terrifying to think about. Like when I wrote the Book of Eli, I had no expectation like how big the movie was going to be. You no, know, it had Denzel Washington and stuff. So like, people are going to see it, but like not everyone's necessarily going to see it. When you work on a new star, I mean, at one point I remember thinking like Steven Spielberg's going to see this movie. Like he just mm -hmm. is, right? It's a Star Wars mm -hmm. film. Correct. George Lucas is going to see this movie, and like that's terrifying and it's really hard to get out of your own head and silence that inner critic when you're when you're working on something where like the stakes are are that high so you know i went into that movie um with incredibly low expectations because i was i was so nervous of setting myself up into a, a point where it was going to be a letdown you know because the 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 trailers for it had looked so good and and I liked the idea of, of getting to this point where we saw what was going to happen right before a new hope. And I just thought that that time frame should be so cool. But I was like, in my brain, I'm like, you know, don't, don't get, don't get worked up about it. It might suck. It might suck. And by the end of it, I was literally like pushing my family out of the theater so that we could get home because mm -hmm. I wanted to see a new hope so badly. And I think, I think we benefited, benefited a little bit from that. Like with JJ's movie, because it was the first one, right? it was episode seven, right? And it's the, yeah. know, the picking up the main, the main storyline 30 years later or whatever. It was a, there was a lot on the line and you know, Han Solo and the Falcon and all the things that people wanted to see. Like I think the expectation and the trailer for that was really cool as well. So the, the expectations were super, super high. Mm -hmm. um, we had the, we had the benefit we had the benefit because we were this odd little thing and nobody quite knew what it was and there was a lot of discussions about making sure that people understood that this wasn't one of the saga films that right. this was a, this Correct. was a stand because we were the first standalone um, and we had to you know, there was there was a marketing question like how do we make this um, there were a lot of questions like is there going to be an opening crawl are we going to have like the the, the start the, the classic Star Wars fanfare is it going to have like all the furniture of the Star Wars films or do we want to try and do something um different and what we realized what lucasfilm really encouraged us to do was like do something different like we want these to be dis distinguished uh -huh. from the saga film so there is no opening crawl right the movie like from the very beginning the fact that the movie opens in a different way is, is kind of like telling you it just kind of goes bam right a long time ago right um mm -hmm. and you know right away oh this isn't like a this isn't like the star wars movies that you grew up with um and i think it still has that dna it still feels like a star wars film but we were able to do things that just weren't 
in the language of Star Wars films before. Like, so we didn't have any of the 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 uh, iris wipes or any of the kind of the, you know the, mm -hmm. the, the edits that make Star Wars films Star Wars films that George originally you know kind of took from Flash Gordon. Uh, we do a time jump, right? There's a big time jump, right? Jyn Erso is a child, and then like it's like you know whatever whatever it is twenty years later. Star Wars movies have never done that, and I remember sitting there. I was so ingrained in like the language of it and the Star Wars movies I grew up with. Like, I want to do it this way because originally I pitched this idea of like showing Jyn as a child and Saw Gerrera and Krennic coming to. To, to get her dad and all that stuff. It's like, but in order to do that, we're going to have to do a time jump. Like, can we do that? Like, it's Star Wars. Star Wars has never done that. And what I kept hearing back, and eventually I got on board with people saying, the fact that Star Wars has never done it is why we should be doing it, right? Because right. we should be, like, branching out and, like, not feeling that we're constrained. I think with JJ, I think I, I think in anything, like, it was JJ was probably a little bit more constrained in that you do have to do the wipes. You, do, you, you, you can't get wacky with it. Like, people still want star wars comfort food right they want their spaghetti and meatballs they want the star wars that they know and love right uh, whereas with rogue one we could be a little bit more hey try this weird sushi try something you've never liked before you, you tried before you might like it and you know it it worked but it was a very high 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 risk high reward proposition to depart from um you know the la the, the visual language of star wars storytelling to the extent that we did uh so i've been a big gamer for most of my life uh Obviously, incredible stories are probably the most important thing to a game, but it's the score that sets the tone. Things, uh, Games like The Last of Us, Destiny, God of War, some of the best soundtracks I've ever heard in a game. Uh, what, in your opinion, is necessary for the score of a video game, and what is your favorite video game like soundtrack? I'm so glad you asked because this genuinely allows me to back into yet another shameless plug. But um, one of my favorite video games of all time also has one of my favorite soundtracks, um, and it's Journey uh, on the PlayStation. Have you ever played Journey? Yes, it's such a beautiful I game. love Journey. And it has this incredible, incredible soundtrack written by a, a, a guy called Austin Wintry, who's a good friend of mine. He actually wrote the music for the Gundog audiobook. Um, oh, and I oh. went to him because he wrote one of my all-time favorite soundtracks, and God knows how I got him to do it, but he put together a full orchestra and, and did this amazing soundtrack. But yeah, um, I think, you know, games, it's interesting. Back in the day, games weren't dependent on story, right? Sorry, Mario. Oh, thank you, Mario, but the princess is in another castle. Like, that's mm -hmm. as good as storytelling got. Now, again, with things like The Last of Us, yeah, we do expect games to be to deliver story, right, and and and, and good characters, and games will get dinged if they don't have good stories and rightly so because the expectation has, has been set by these amazing games like like the last of us and uncharted and you know just really cool games um i think you know so i think the rules are very similar to you know what makes a good movie soundtrack you know it's 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 what's going to evoke the mood what sets the tone what takes you to that place right what, what what is it that puts you in that in that mindset um and i think game compose you know michael giacchino who did the music for Rogue One and for you know many a lot of Marvel movies and is now one of the biggest uh, composers in Hollywood? Started as a video game guy. He used to write video game soundtracks and his stuff was amazing even then. Um, I when I met him at the Rogue One premiere, I was like, oh man, I love the I love the soundtrack you did for Medal of Honor Allied Assault back in the days. Oh, you remember that? Like he was really he, he's amazed that somebody would remember like his early video game work. But um, yeah, I think it's it's no surprise that we're seeing like more. Um, uh, video game composers kind of migrating into 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 film work because they're very interchangeable. There you go. I I didn't even know that would connect back, but there you go. I'll always I, 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 I trust me. I'll, I'll find I'll always find a way to get back to what I'm plugging. <laughs> but in that case, you made it easy. Yeah. Oh, hey. Well, you know, sometimes we got to set them up so you can knock them down. 
All right, Gary, this is our last question for you. We call it our silly question. And we used to ask a variety of things. And uh, we tried quiz quizzes for a while, but we uh, got destroyed by Sam Witwer. And we decided that that was uh, probably not in our best interest. Yeah, that was a quiz. Yeah. No, that was really dumb. Uh, yeah, he was answering the questions before we could finish them. So, yeah. Uh, so we decided to start asking silly questions. And okay. we were asking a variety of them. But lately, we've settled on this one because we think that it's a shame that adults don't get asked this question anymore. Gary Witta, what's your favorite dinosaur? Triceratops. Didn't even have to think about it. It's a good choice. Uh, that's my favorite as well. I've always oh, loved really? them. Good, yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. I feel like the herbivores don't get enough credit. Mm -hmm. I always thought they were cool because they were, when I, I liked them as a kid because I liked rhinos. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and they're the most like a rhino. Right, and there was a triple rhino. rhino so dino. Yeah, it was yeah. so. I like I like Stegosaurus as well, but Triceratops. I, 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 when they had the Triceratops in Jurassic Park, that was I was really glad they put that in there. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Mm -hmm. yeah. Gary, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Where can our viewers and our listeners find out more about your work and what you've got coming? You can find me uh, on social media. I'm very active. I'm one of those extremely online people. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm just Gary Witter, G-A-R-Y-W-H-I-T-T-A. -T -T uh, also, that's I'm Gary Witter on um, Instagram. I'm just, sorry, I'm Gary Witter on YouTube and Blue Sky, and I'm just G Witter, G-W-H-I-T-T-A, uh, on Instagram and Threads. And I'm Gary Witter on TikTok. I'm trying to get I'm trying to get something going on TikTok. It's slow because I'm like 42, 40 years too old to be on TikTok. <laughs> but I'm doing my best. You can find me on TikTok as well um, at Gary Witter. Well, thanks. We'll make sure to get those uh, put in our show description with all the links and everything so our viewers and listeners can check you out. Yeah, and the book's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you know you might go find books. We have an ebook as well if you prefer to read on Kindle or whatever, iBooks. It's, it's uh, just type Gundog into, into any Amazon thing. And if you like the audio book, go find it on Audible or on podcast services. That version's free. Excellent. Well, we'll make sure that uh, we get those in there for you, Gary. And we want to remind everybody that subscribing is the single most important thing that you can do to ensure that we get more amazing guests like Gary Witta here today and have these funny moments for you to be able to listen to. So please subscribe. It helps us well more than we can ever really tell you. And be sure to check out Gary's work as well. You'll find those down in the show notes, just you know, right down under there. So make sure you click on those and go check out his books, his works, everything else. And if for whatever reason, if you are not happy with the content of our show today, please feel free to lodge a complaint with the head of our complaint department. That, of course, is Director Krennic. Unless, of course, Grand Moff Tarkin steps in to take credit for what Krennic has accomplished. Not that there's a history of that happening or anything. But whether it's Krennic or Tarkin taking over, send three copies of your complaint to the ISB. They will either send out one squad of death troopers or one highly irritated inquisitor. Either way, the future is not bright for whoever has brought about your level of ire. Just keep in mind that the Empire is completely willing to enforce the saying, snitches get stitches. <laughs> so there's that. So maybe think about it before you hit that enter button. All right, Gary, thank you so much. Thanks for, for playing along and, and being our guest today on the FSF podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Copyright 2023 FSF podcast. Reference to any specific product or entity mentioned on this podcast does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by FSF Podcast. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact us via email at info at fsfpodcast.com.
Original music by Jordan Michaels.